Good morning, Grace Point. It is so great to see you here this morning. I'm glad you're joining us for our online gathering and week two of Meaning Making. We started last week by talking about um, the way we seek to find meaning and how meaning, the, the question of what does this mean, is part of this intrinsic human experience of wanting to know where things belong and where to place them. So that was the introduction. This week, moving forward, um, I want to spend some time responding to the things that you all have asked, whether in a private message or in the Grace Point Facebook group or um, online. You, you've sent some really, really insightful, meaningful questions, and I want to start responding to those. And I want to begin today with a question, essentially, that um, a couple people asked in different ways, and um, I think it's something that we've all probably wrestled with. Um, one person said, during a tragedy, it's really unfortunate that some leaders of faith state, this is punishment for, and then they fill in the blank, whatever the thing they're against is. Or when they're trying to console someone's loss, they say it was God's plan, basically making God the scapegoat, right? Uh, another person said, a struggle with some folks saying this is God's way of getting our attention. Um, I bet we've all heard those. I bet many of us, maybe some of us at least, me included, have uh, unfortunately said some of those things before in the past about God's plan and God's getting our attention. Um, so I thought we should take some time today and say, where, where is God during a pandemic? Where do we locate the divine? And how do we speak of that? And how do we engage that? And I think one of the places many of us, even the people who are saying this is punishment for or this was God's plan, we're, we're drawing that meaning from the Bible. We turn to the sacred text to try to give us wisdom and insight. And that makes sense, right? Because the Bible is born out of human experiences. And one of the deepest human needs is meaning making. It's to know where to put things. It's to know what they mean. And so it's normal that we would go to the Bible and say, what, what, does our, what did our ancestors say about this and what was their experience? The problem is that when we see the Bible as some sort of rule book or some sort of answer book that is just giving us the next step to do this, 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 and this, uh, instead of being guided by our ancestors' search for meaning, uh, instead of being guided by their experiences into our own experiences, which was always the point of the Bible, not that we would stop with it, but that the Bible would introduce us to our ancestors and their experiences, and then that would push us into our own journey and our own experiences. When we, when we make the Bible something else, when we make it an answer book or we make it some sort of rule book, um, we can actually end up using the Bible in sort of a weaponized way. And a weaponized Bible cannot heal. It can only wound. And so when people are saying, oh, this is part of God's plan, that's being drawn from certain understandings of the text, uh, certain understandings of the scripture and the tradition. Um, but actually, I don't think it's, it's the best way to use the Bible uh, because the Bible doesn't have to wound us. The Bible actually can guide us into a healthy, honest approach toward the meaning-making questions we're all asking. There's one particular story in the Bible that I've come to really appreciate deeply, and it's a story that I've gone back to time and again in really difficult moments when I've had to say some words at the, a funeral at the loss of someone, um, especially someone very young. There are times that you, you, you get put in that role and you, you are searching for words and words fail you. And this story has always um, spoken to me as I was thinking about where is God during a pandemic? This is the story that popped up for me. It's found in John chapter 9. It's a story about Jesus and his disciples, and it's, a, it's one of the signs in John's gospel. John organizes a chunk of the gospel around these seven signs Jesus performs. Uh, so John 9, 1. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. 
While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. It's just a really, really interesting story. And the story opens, this scene opens with Jesus' disciples asking a question, or the disciples asking Jesus a question that reveals an assumption that was held by pretty much everybody in the ancient world. No matter how you slice it, almost everybody held this assumption that if something bad happened to you, or if something went wrong, or something unfortunate, if something bad happened to you, it must mean that you've sinned, and this is a punishment for it. Right? I mean, that's what they're saying. Who sinned? This man or his parents, because he was born blind, so it must have been either him or his parents. He did something in the womb, or they did something before he was born, and he was born blind. That's an assumption everybody held, and it pops up all over the place in the Bible. It pops up in the story of Job, right? Job's this guy who has it all. Um, he has a big family. He's wealthy. Everything's going in his favor, and then systematically everything gets taken away. All of his children die in a, in a disaster. He becomes sick. He loses everything. All of his flocks, everything's gone. Right? And so then some friends, the book of Job is essentially these friends who show up and try to console Job and they sit with him. But the problem is when they actually begin this long poetic conversation, the friends essentially say that Job must have sinned, that his children who died must have sinned to deserve that punishment, and that Job actually probably deserved something worse and God was being kind to him by not doing something worse. I mean, with friends like that, right, like you don't really need enemies, but they're just swimming in the waters of conventional theological wisdom of the day. Everybody assumed that if something good happened to you, that the gods were on your side and you had favor. And if something bad happened to you, the gods were angry with you and you needed to do something, right? Like offer something, kill something, give something uh, so that the gods would get back on your side. And that's exactly what's going here in John chapter nine. These disciples are asking the question, whose fault? Because in their understanding, somebody's to blame. I love what John Shelby Spong says about this. The episode begins with a question. The disciples ask Jesus, who is to be blamed for the man having been born blind? The common theological wisdom of the day held that sickness and tragedy were instruments of divine punishment. Religion had proclaimed that with the all-powerful supernatural God in charge, there must be an explanation for human pain and tragedy that protected the justice of God. So sickness meant that someone was getting what was deserved. Now, in this particular case, the sickness, the, the issue is that this man was born blind. And so either he did something in the womb or his parents did something before he was born that caused this to happen. And I think we yeah, I usually used to read this text as these disciples are super um, uh, not self-aware. They're super insensitive. I mean, this man is sitting by the side of the road looking for help, and they want to turn him into a theological debate. But what you have to understand is they really weren't being insensitive. They were just assuming what was taken for granted by everybody in their world. If you did some, if you're, if you have an issue, if you have an illness, if something goes wrong, you're being punished. And because Jesus is their teacher, they look to him to gain wisdom. They look to him for a response. The disciples are trying to make meaning out of the situation. This man is born blind. What does it mean? Right? He was born blind. What do we do with it? What does it mean? Whose fault? How do we arrange it? And, and, 2,000 years later, this feels kind of familiar to us sometimes, doesn't it? 
I mean, even when we've deconstructed sort of and left behind an old understanding of God, that, you know, God is a, a, a old man who has a big beard, who wears a long robe and lives above the clouds. Like when that God, we no longer believe in that God. Um, it can still creep in to the back of our mind when something goes wrong, right? When you're late for work and you get a flat tire or when you lose a job or when you get a diagnosis or experience a loss, we can begin to wonder, like, is this a God smack? Am I being punished? Is God trying to teach me a lesson of some sort? Um, and if we don't think about that, there are plenty of tone-deaf theologians who are going to bring it up for us. Uh, I noticed over the past couple of weeks, there were several prominent uh, conservative pastors, theologian type folks who are offering these sorts of answers online. And they're just not helpful, right? It, it's, it's not helpful. Or if something terrible happens, people conclude it was just God's plan. And if that's the case, then God's plans really stink sometimes, right? We can't imagine the way those kind of statements also affect people who, have, who are going through loss and pain. When you come up to somebody who's experiencing grief and say, oh, this is all part of God's plan, or you say, oh, God really just needed another angel. I've seen that time and time again, because in moments of grief, we often don't know what to do. We haven't been taught, trained for it. We've been taught to avoid pain. Um, and when pain inevitably shows up, we have no clue what to do with it. And so often, and I could, I've been as guilty as anybody, some of the stuff that comes out of our mouths when we're just trying to make meaning and we're just trying to be helpful can actually cause deeper wounds and cause the pain to be worth, worse than it was even in the beginning. And if, of course we want to find meaning in the things that happen to us. We want them to matter in some sort of larger way. But the way we seek it often can lead to making God uh, look, look terrible and create sort of a victim-blaming process. Right. After all, what would what would a sufficient response be when we ask, why did this happen? Um, let, let's let's say you, you lost your job and you, why? Why would this happen? What was the reason behind it? And what if God actually said to you, here's what happened. You know, that stop sign that you did a rolling stop through the other day. You thought nobody saw it. There was no police around. You got by with it scot free. I saw. And now I'm punishing you because of a rolling stop sign. Right? Like, isn't that crazy? But, but we, we want to know why. And the reality is there is no why that would ever be sufficient. Not in a meaning sort of way. Right? We need a lens for processing grief and pain that doesn't turn God into a monster and doesn't blame victims for their suffering. Because if we don't learn to process and transform our pain, this is brilliance from Richard Rohr. If we don't learn to process our pain and transform it, we will transmit it. And so many times in the world, that's exactly what we do. We hold on to it. We don't know what to do with it. We want to keep it outside of us, keep it away from us. And in doing so, we just start hot potatoing it around to the people in our lives or even people we don't know who just happen to come in contact with us. Pain has a way of spreading uh, and, and doing much more damage than if we actually dealt with it head on. But back to John 9, Jesus' disciples are trying to make meaning, they're trying to make sense of what's happening, and they have no concepts that we have of modern medicine, of reasons why this man would have been born blind. And here's the thing, to be fair, we know those things, and still sometimes when things happen, we dip our toe back into that older way of seeing things, that previous way of seeing things that says, gosh, if this happened, I must have done something to deserve it. Um, things don't just happen by chance. I did something to deserve it. Right. So this, th these disciples are operating under an assumption that even many of us still reluctantly will drift back into when things are happening. And here's Jesus' response to their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents, uh, 
This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. Now that last line, if you read it a certain way, it could be read like this. Well, God made him blind so that I could come by and heal him and so that everybody would think God is great. Right? That, that is a way you could read that. But um, for, fortunately, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Well, one of my favorite renderings of this is found in the message um, that Eugene Peterson paraphrased, translation. Um, and here's what he says. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Now listen to this response the way Peterson translates it. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Look instead for what God could do. I love it. You're asking the wrong question. Jesus' response is almost to say this. We don't know. Why is this man born blind? We don't know. This whole God punishing him or God punishing his parents, that's not how things work. That's not how anything works. I mean, could it be sometimes that things just happen because they just happen? Right? It isn't that there's somebody, maybe it's a super boring reason because it just happened. And maybe the meaning that we're looking for is not found in the event, but in the response. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. We don't know why this guy was born blind. He just is. And now we get to do something in response to it. Look, I, I don't believe that God engineers pandemics. I don't believe God sends earthquakes or tornadoes. I don't believe God causes cancer or car accidents. I believe that these things unfortunately happen. They're just part of the world we live in. And when it comes to earthquakes, there are in tornadoes and uh, pandemics. There are natural explanations for why they happened. It's not some big divine scheme. It's not God twisting the knobs and pulling the levers to get even with us. It's just something that happens. I do believe that meaning is made in the way we respond to these things. And I think this, when Jesus says, look instead for what God can do, I think that's the bit he's talking about, the response. It's an invitation to move our energy and attention from an, either an unknowable or an unsatisfying why to the potential of a what now. And we spend all of our time on a why that will just leave us either confused or unsatisfied when we could actually be channeling all of our energy into, okay, what now? What are we going to do about this now? And this was a really interesting um, uh, time in Nashville uh, when just a month or so ago we had a tornado. And what happened in our city? We shifted, people shifted to the what now. And people started going out and helping each other and started um, helping each other clear property. And it was just this beautiful this beautiful, in, the, in this tragic moment, in this darkness, there was this beautiful light beginning to emerge as human beings moved on to the what now. And I think that's what we're being invited to do. Jesus is not saying this guy's here is a pawn in God's game so God can look good. Jesus is saying, we don't know. That's the wrong question. The real, the real question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond? How are we going to engage? One of the terms in Christian theology is for, to talk about the life of Jesus is the incarnation, right? It's the theological term to talk about the way um, theologians have argued for generations and a couple thousand years about how the whole Jesus thing works, right? And so incarnation is a way of saying that in the life of Jesus, we experience the divine, however you want to 
understand that. John Dominic Crossan said, Jesus is what God looks like with sandals, right? So like, that's the image, right? Incarnation, God doing something in the world through Jesus. But I actually think limiting that to Jesus is one of our biggest, greatest theological mistakes. We have spent our time and energy arguing about how it happens in the life of Jesus. And we've failed to realize at times that the in-fleshness of God isn't isolated to Jesus. It's actually something that happens in and through every single one of us. Later in the Gospel of John, John will actually say, Jesus is, John's Jesus will actually say, you don't be so shocked about what I'm doing. You'll do greater things than this. Um, our friend Doug Padgett wrote a book called Greater Than, which is all about that. People in the world who are incarnating the, the divine, people who are through their lives are expressing the what now. Uh, and, God, and, and God is showing up in them and through them. And in the what now, they are able to begin to make some meaning. What if, what if Jesus meant that? What if Jesus meant that we get to do greater? That when we go into the world, it's not just, we're not just a bag of flesh and bones, that somehow as image bearers of the divine, we move into the world incarnating that reality. What if meaning is found in the ways we give ourselves to the good work of what now? the work of loving and caring for our neighbors, in the ways we embody compassion and love, in the ways we open ourselves up to receive those same things in our own moments of need. God does not. I, I, I don't, I'm not certain about a lot of things. I'm really not. But I, I would almost teeter on the edge of certainty on this. God does not plan disaster and disease. I actually believe God experiences them with us. I, I don't think God is somewhere above the sky going, what is today? Oh, it's April something something. That must mean it's time for an earthquake over there. Right? That's not how God works. I, I don't think God sits up there and watches this stuff happen and then just says, uh, I'm not going to fool with that. I don't think that's how it works. I think that God, for us to be free, for us to be able to make our choices, for us to be able to experience life and love and all those things, um, we have to be Free, which means God has to experience things with us, not separate from us. And what does the cross mean if it doesn't mean that God suffers in solidarity with all who suffer? I think one of the profound, powerful things about the cross is when people look at the cross and say, in, in some way, God was present in Jesus in that moment doing a thing. What was the thing? I think part of the thing was God identifying with those who suffer and God suffering right with them. That God stands in solidarity with everybody who mourns. That God stands in solidarity with everyone who grieves that God stands in solidarity with everyone who's been oppressed and forgotten and marginalized, that if you want to find God, it will not be up there looking down on it, but it'll be right here, smack dab in the middle of it, experiencing it, crying our tears, uh, feeling our heartbreak. That's where you'll find the divine. I believe God does make her presence known in every act of kindness and mercy and generosity and compassion. God reveals her ultimate plan which is that we would love each other well, which is that we would shift our focus from the why. An unknowable and often, I guarantee you, unsatisfying why. And move on to the energy, invitation, and possibility of what now. So where do you find God during a pandemic like this? You find God in the people who are putting their well-being at risk for the well-being of others. Where do you find God in a pandemic? You find God in neighbors who decide to stay home 
right? They decide to shelter in place because that's what it takes to beat this thing. In all the little ways we choose love, compassion, and all the ways we choose to embody and incarnate the love that we call God into this world, that's where you'll find God. She's everywhere doing good through real flesh and blood human beings just like me and you. Why? Why, does this, why is this pandemic happening? Why do we experience loss? Why do we, those are unknowable and unsatisfying. But what now? What are we going to do? What is our response going to be? And it's interesting that it took Jesus getting his hands dirty for this to happen, right? He, he stoops down, he spits into the mud, which had to have been just a very uncomfortable scene, right? And this blind man is asked to be healed, and he hears Jesus spitting. And I, I would bet that this man has experienced his share of abuse, his share of neglect, his share of being mocked and ridiculed and mistreated. And yet Jesus gets down, makes mud, places it on his eyes, and sends him to wash, and he came back seeing. As we move through this time, it's going to often take our hands getting dirty, dirty to love one another well, to make sure everybody's taken care of, to make sure nobody gets left out or forgotten. It's the hard work of being light in the world. It's hard work, and it's the most rewarding work you can possibly engage in. So, I don't know the why about anything. I mean, I can give you scientific, well, I can't give you scientific, I'm not a scientist, but scientists can give you, doctors can give you, like people who know fields can give you reasons why things happen, very concrete, literal reasons at times. But when it comes to the bigger question, the existential why, what if we were to lay that down for a bit? And what if we were to lean into the possibility of what?